Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Matthias Hantjens, co-author with Pierre de Joya Carabalesi of European Banking and Financial Law, the second edition of which was published in 2020 by Routledge. As the writers make clear in the introduction to the second edition of this textbook, an update was urgently needed after five years. A wave of legislation had been initiated after the 2008 financial crisis, but took years to negotiate, implement, and make itself felt in markets that had also been transformed by the crisis itself and by technological change. The other enormous change since the first edition in 2015, and one that is still a big open question for financial lawyers and practitioners alike, is the City of London's departure from the European Economic Area last month. Matthias Hanschens is Professor of Law at the University of Leiden and a Deputy Judge in the District Court of Amsterdam. He obtained his PhD from the University of Amsterdam and was a visiting researcher at Harvard, NYU, and the University of Paris. Matthias, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I said in the introduction that an update was needed, but who was the first mover? Was it you and your co-writer or Routledge? And secondly, what was your target readership in 2015 and how successful have you been in reaching it over the last five years? Well, thanks thanks for that question. Um, who was the first mover? I guess we were for the second edition, certainly. Um, and that has also had, has to do with how we came about writing the first edition. Because as you said in the introduction of the financial crisis, an enormous amount of legislation from the European level has been uh, adapted, ad- adopted. And um, um, what you saw in the years afterwards, that in universities across Europe, um, courses have been developed which dealt with EU financial law as a separate topic and sometimes even as a separate course or separate um, uh, master program. There are universities now who have a full-year program on EU financial law and um, uh, financial law even more generally. So that's why we came up in the, um, well, during the financial crisis, actually, to write a textbook specifically for that purpose, for EU financial law courses. And we wanted to draft it rather quickly to to answer that need, uh, which we saw in various universities. So we drafted this book and then Routledge approached us asking, well, what would you think of um, writing a textbook? And then, well, the two things came together and we rather quickly wrote the book and, and, and it was published. And we said to ourselves, well, this we did this rather quickly to, to answer to the demand in the market that we saw. But, you know, after a couple of years, then obviously we, will, we would have real life classroom experience and also the um, well, as you said correctly, uh, a lot of new developments would have been uh, would have occurred. So uh, that prompted us to to write to write the uh, the second 
edition to uh, to address uh, uh, things that, that 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 came up during the last years, both in the classroom and outside of it. Mm-hmm. And at the, the end of every chapter, you have these um, uh, questions, sort of five or five or so questions. Uh, are they questions that came up in your teaching over the last five years, and and that's why you you put them in there? Yes, that's that, that's right. Um, they they came up, but also um, well, they came up from from the students, but also from us. So that's mm. that's also what we wanted to quiz our students about. Um, ask them and check uh, whether uh, whether they had understood to check their the progress and. Um, um, what they, what they thought of, of the topic to make them yeah. uh, think further about the topic. So the, these questions have, you could say, a, 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 a double purpose. First, to, to check whether you've understood what was what's the topic, but also to um, to um, uh, to incite you to um, to think think a bit further and to to assess critically on what you have learned. Mm-hmm. I, one of the things I like is uh, before you launch into each detailed. Uh, uh, into the detailed law in each chapter, you begin with minimal assumed knowledge about the financial instruments and the history of the lawmaking process. When you're teaching the book, does that take up a lot of time or are students expected to read and internalise those basics before they come to to, to your lectures? Yeah, well, that that depends a bit on on the level that you're teaching. Um, So this book is really meant as an introductory book to uh, financial markets, to financial law, more specifically to uh, to EU financial law. So naturally, we assumed um, basic knowledge to be rather minimal. And um, that's also where we saw that there is a lack in, well, was a lack in the in, in what was out there. So most, most books on financial law, they assume a lot of knowledge and they immediately go very deep into uh, into the problems they they want to tackle, but um, they um, they they skip that that first part. And, and um, I have found I have found out that myself the hard way because well, when I started to specialize in this in this area 15, 20 years ago, uh, there was no such book, and I've always um, found that difficult to to have you know not not a, not a nice introductory um, book where things are brought together. So it depends a bit on, on the level that, that you're teaching. So sometimes when we well, when we teach undergraduate level, then um, you would naturally take some more time to, uh, to discuss those very basic issues. But when you're teaching in a more advanced level, you can, you can skip that um, um, and, and leave that more, well, assume that to be known already. Although, I think um, that's what teaching has uh, has taught me. Um, never assume too much knowledge on the um, <laughs> on from the perspective of the audience. Um, it's always a good thing to um, you know to start with the basics, uh, so that you're all on the same page, especially with a with a with a technical topic such as this one. Yeah. Well, it really struck me that one of the themes running through the book is how far ahead the U.S. has been in this field. For example. Uh, you identify this in uh, when you're talking about establishing prospectus standards, and mo- most notably when it came to um, policing market abuse. The gap there was something like 50 years. So you seem to suggest 
that the Europeans or many Europeans had a cultural view that professional investors didn't require protection. Do, do you think that was at the at the root of this difference? Yes, that that may have that may have have to do with it. I'm I'm not so sure about um, cultural differences that lie at the basis of it. Um, at Leiden, we also teach um, Anglo-American financial law, so we we also study the differences between the European market and the and the American markets. And what we um, see time and again as a as a as a cause of, of differences is that the U.S. markets have always been very much geared, much more geared towards um, capital markets financing of companies. So companies. In the, in, in the US tend to finance themselves by issuing bonds uh, on the market. Whereas in the, well, the, the, the European tradition is a bank-financed model where companies finance themselves, finance their activities by having bank loans. And this has various consequences. I think also for this topic that, we're, that you're now addressing, um, so the capital... U.S. capital markets have, for this reason, always been deeper and more advanced, and that may also have been the reason why they are they were far ahead with thinking about how to organize capital markets and, and, and protect investors uh, through the law. Um, I, th- I think I think that may also have uh, a lot to do with it, with with that particular difference that you now address. And, and, and do you think the recent uh, Wirecard case suggests that the European authorities at the EU and national level or EU or national level still don't take this as seriously as the Americans, perhaps for some of the reasons you, you set out there? And does this require additional legislation or a, a, a change in business culture or reprioritizing funding into the regulators? Yes, that's, that's a very interesting um well, I think the jury is still out there on on what caused this, um, you know, why, why this, this 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 has happened, uh, and what what would be the best um, remedy against it. Um, I'm not sure whether this would not have happened or, or doesn't happen in in the US. I, I do think that this Wirecard may have Wirecard scandal may also have to do with the more fragmented supervisory setup in, 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 in the EU. I mean, in the US, there is a fragmented, also a, a certain type of fragmentation of, of supervisory structure that you have um, numerous various uh, agencies who all have um, th- their specific remit as to the supervision of financial markets in the US. But you do, but it's, it's, it's mainly on the, uh, on the federal federal level, I, I think there is a lot of integration and, um, um, and, and, and a lot of attention also to supervision and enforcement on the, on the federal level. And especially where it regards um, money laundering, um, that it has been lacking um, in, in the EU, that is, on the supranational level. And that is very much now... Uh, on, on the on the agenda, the European uh, institutions to to fill that gap 
and to create a uh, a European um, anti money laundering uh, agency, um, so 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 that these cross border issues are effectively tackled on a supranational level, and I, I th- that that may also have been something that lies at the root of of this specific scandal. Yeah. Uh, moving on to um, banking. Um, on balance, how successfully do you think the European Banking Union process is going? Will it? Do you think it'll only be truly successful when a strong, well-capitalized bank is allowed or feels secure enough to buy a weak, cheap bank in another EBU country? Yes, that, that's that could certainly be a um, um, evidence evidence of that. Um, Unfortunately, I don't. I don't think that that would be. Um, well, that, that that should not be the benchmark. I mean, what we've seen before the global financial crisis, and maybe what have, may have caused it to a certain extent, uh, is that also banks did take over other banks in in other jurisdictions, um, even if it concerned a, a a a less capitalized bank taking over another bank. Um, We've seen numerous or various examples of that. Um, so, so I'm. I do think that it would be um, it would be evidence of, of a success of the banking union when um, banks would be um, sufficiently capitalized, have a strong capital structure. Um, so, so, so on that on that on that point, I I, I definitely agree, and maybe. Um, it would be a. Um, um, it would be. A, I think it would be very interesting to see what happens now um, with this with with this terrible pandemic that we've going we've seen going on now. Um, until now, of course. Well, prim- primarily, it's a health crisis, of course. Um, but this is now morphing into an economic crisis, and it may also. Uh, and various commentators have suggested that may also morph into a financial crisis, uh, and and that I think will be a real test for the banking union uh, and the new rules that have been um, uh, adopted in the wake of the previous financial crisis. Whether the European banking system is now strong enough to 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 shoulder those losses and to weather that storm. Of this uh, of, of the pandemic and, and the economic crisis that ensues, so so I think that will be a real a real test um, at first, and then also you know it is inevitable that banks fail, even even if you have the strongest supervisory structure and the harshest capital requirements, it is inevitable that that, that banks fail, and I think a, a a crucial test will also be whether Banks will be um, allowed or will be able to fail in an, in an orderly manner, uh, and 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 resolution can be done efficiently and adequately. And 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 I think that's that that will be also be will be a big test. And um, well, we've we've now talked about supervision. Um, that's that's that, that's what's called the, the first pillar. And well, the second pillar is then. A sufficient resolution regime, which which has been set set up, but the third pillar is still lacking, and that is a, a common deposit 
guarantee scheme. And, and, and what you see now I th- was just the other day that the European Commission has relaunched um, an initiative to, uh, to, to come up with exactly that, um, a sort of common deposit guarantee scheme or um, something similar to that. So that's that's still lacking, but 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 many feel that that's that's urgently needed as um you know as, as as the last pillar, the last component of the banking union, which which is necessary to make it really successful. Yes, ironically, the um, the deposit guarantee scheme is something that hasn't changed at all since you wrote the first edition, because I mean, <laughs> that that idea has been. Um, knocking around really going back to the financial crisis and, and very little progress has, has been made. On, I'm glad you raised the, the issue of resolution because it's it's very striking that uh, this very ambitious directive, the Bank Recovery and Resolution Directive, was was passed early, early in the decade. And markets felt that they had a clear understanding of how, how and when banks should be resolved in the hierarchy of losses. But but in fact, it was only applied a couple of times, um, Banco Popular in 2017, for example, when it came, you know, when it came to a, a proper political challenge, like with the Venetian banks, ways were found around of not applying the BRRD. So so how, you know, do do you think this 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 lack of clarity about uh, about resolution is a problem, and 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 that when something like this happens again, po- politics will not intervene. Yeah, that's 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 a very interesting and and, and highly important issue you raise. Um, I think you know the, the capitalization or the financing, I should say, of, of a bank failure is you know that that is the the core of a well functioning. Or of any functioning um, resolution regime, and indeed, um, after the global financial crisis, um, the new resolution regimes have been uh, adopted, and the, the bail-in mechanism under which um, private financiers of a bank shoulder the, the losses, so shareholders and 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 bondholders, they should they should shoulder the losses. Rather than having taxpayers um, um, pay the bill, so that 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 bail-in mechanism had been heralded as the um, well the, the the new mechanism that would um, make everything different. But um, reality has proven to be um, more difficult than that. And what you have seen, indeed, and you 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 rightly refer to these these Italian. Banks um, as an example of where this bail-in mechanism was considered to be politically unacceptable, so that um, uh, bailout, so mm. taxpayer money um, put in, was was resorted to. And um, there are various interesting aspects to this. I think, well, one. Um, aspect of it is that in these specific cases also, or in Italian case, what you saw is that banks had sold bonds that then were subject to, to bail in to, to retail investors. And it was 
considered to be um, unacceptable that, that these clients, these retail investors who were uh, put under pressure by, by, the, by the bank itself to, to, to buy these bonds were then um, um, subjected to, um, to bail-in. Um, and and, and, and this, this problem then should be resolved, I think, by having stricter rules on, on how to sell these type of, of bonds and um, uh, but this has more to do with conduct supervision and rules for, for conduct than, than than prudential or resolution rules. But what what you will see is, and I think this also will happen in the um, in, in the economic crisis that, that that we've now going on, is that in in several instances states will feel compelled to step in and and keep. Um, companies from whether that be a bank or, or, or another company uh, from falling over because the consequences of such a failure would be harsher and, and, and more destructive than having it uh, kept afloat by uh, by taxpayer money. So so the it is it is a bit it is a bit bit mixed mixed picture I think. Um, I'm what I think is is good is that the Bank recovery and resolution um, regime, the directive that we now have in place, does allow for certain um, um, certain uh, ways of government intervention. So, unlike, for instance, under U.S. law, there is a there is a prohibition on on state uh, recapitalization. We do not have that in the in the, in the European uh, legislation. So, I think European legislation. Does allow for some flexibility, and 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 does allow states to step in at certain um, in certain circumstances, um, but that should not be the default rule. And um, indeed, we've only seen one big bank now um, being resolved under the resolution regime. I, I I have hopes, good hopes that it will be repeated, but but there are some well some some issues that that, that might need to be addressed. Um, um, so, in, in in other areas, maybe um, 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 so such as when it, when it concerns certain conduct, supervision, but also that, that there may be also economic circumstances in which it's it will become inevitable for a state to step in. Hmm. What does, the does other area an, which is, answer a bit which your, your question? Yes, no, it, it, sorry, it did. Go, go it did. Uh, sorry, you cut out for a second there. Uh, yeah, uh, the other a similar case is is the case of the um, the large exposure regime. Um, and you you mention this in the book. You say um, this this regime is quote riddled with exceptions, discretions, and supervisory decisions, reducing its usefulness as a risk reducing factor. Now. The obvious one of these is that it doesn't cover home state sovereign bonds. But what are some? Well, a, how would you like to see that resolved? And and b, what are some of these other issues, uh, uh, exceptions, discretions, and supervisory decisions you're referring to? Yeah. So so um, a lot of these um, European um, instruments they they allow for. Um, for, for for exceptions or, or discretions, and um, 
at what, from one from from the one hand that has to do with wishing to um, to to leave it up to 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 national member states to um, to to mold the instrument to a, to a specific national market, um, but also on the other hand, it has to do with um, having the discretion to apply the rules proportionate to the um, to the uh, to the financial institution under supervision. So so there are a lot of uh, exceptions and 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 supervisory discretions or room for that. Uh, in, in the instruments, and on the one hand, that is uh, difficult also for for for, for the um, for the markets and for the financial institutions under supervision, um, uh, who, who sometimes prefer a hard and fast rule over more flexible rules, um, because that gives less certainty. But on the other hand, it does give the supervisory authorities room to to apply it. Um, in a proportionate way in a specific circumstance, so there there are two there are two ways to look at it, and 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 well, specifically on this on this matter, um, you see a bit this this phenomenon also reflected in this uh, in in the large exposure regime. Yeah, and is is there um, do you have a preferred solution to dealing with this home state sovereign bond? Issue this this idea of the doom loop between the between the state and the uh, and the um, home registered banks. Yes, this this is a well, very difficult knot to to untangle, and it certainly does not help that banks um, have an incentive to to take on a lot of government debt on the on the balance sheet because it's well, it's um, um, there is this. Um, favorable supervisory treatment of it, so so that that surely doesn't doesn't help. Um, there are also other ways to, well, other um, instruments that try to disentangle the, the knot, to 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 break the knot between um, government finances and um, and the financial sector or the banking sector. Well, for one, the resolution regime that we've just talked about if it if you have a well functioning resolution regime where losses can be borne to a to an important extent uh, by shareholders and and other creditors uh, and and there is a a credible regime in place for orderly liquidation that would um, that would surely help um, um, uh, to 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 disentangle the not so that states do not have to step in and um, and, and, and and nationalize a bank, for instance, when it when it um, when it when it falls over. So so there are various ways to to address the issue, and and well, one of the obvious solutions also would be to to the specific issue that you just refer to is to to take away the specific incentive um, of this favorable capital treatment. For banks of um, of government debt, but that of course is a is a very difficult political issue to uh, to um, to tackle because there is a clearer clearer um, interest in um, uh, for, for for governments for the European member states to um, to have a um, 
um, to, to, to be able to issue government debt uh, under favorable um, uh, uh, commercial um, conditions. So, and, and I would guess that in the, also the current environment where mm. billions of euros uh, are poured into the economics is in our markets to um, well to keep everything a bit afloat. Um, so there will be immense pressure on state finances. So I would be surprised if this, <laughs> if maybe this specific um, yeah. element, which would change change very soon. Yes, again, that that's one that's been knocking around in my memory for a couple of decades. So I won't hold my breath. In the book, you you identify two laws, um, the 2002 Directive on Financial Collateral Arrangements and the 2009 Regulation on Credit Ratings Agencies as stretching the boundaries of EU lawmaking. The first was, quote, a rare instance where the EU has harmonized national property and insolvency law. And the second you describe as extraordinary because it provided direct grounds for civil liability. Can, can you expand on this and 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 how this how, how this came about? Yes. Well, um, what's interesting, I think, is that the mandate of the European legislature has always been very narrowly defined, where you see instruments. Um, being adopted, um, especially in the the earlier ones, they're always very, very specific, targeting a specific issue, a specific problem in the uh, in the financial markets. Um, but you see more and more that it be how difficult it is to address a specific topic in a certain area of law without um, having to take into account the consequences this has on bordering areas of of law in a specific member state. And this specifically concerns directives which are implemented into 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 um, into member states' laws. Um, this may sound a bit abstract. What I mean is that, for instance, um, you can regulate something about, well, let's say a certain transaction um, but when you regulate that uh, and, and, and that is then implemented into a member state law, then elements of that member state contract law and property law may be also of relevance and, uh, and may shape the implementation of the European um, instrument in that specific instance. So then you might end up with Different implementation, different member states. Um, uh, anyway, so so that's 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 what 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 you see, and especially that 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 regards um, instruments which have a private law aspect. So, um, European legislator has always been reluctant to um, to legislate on issues of property law, uh, especially. If, and exactly for this this very purpose, because um, these this this has so this has this is felt to be such a deeply ingrained issue in the systems of member states' private laws. So what's interesting, especially about this 
um, financial collateral directive is that it does address issues of property law, um, albeit in the specific area of collateral finance transactions. Um, but what what you see is that um, because it well it has taken this bold step to 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 regulate issues of property law, um, you see these exactly these these different implementations across member states as I just described. So I think I think that's a very very interesting example. The other example that you refer to is the credit rating agency um, regulation, which is another example of where you have a um, uh, an instrument, a provision of of private law that has been adopted on the European level, and usually what you see is that um, issues of of tort law also are left to the member states. But in this instance, you have a a, a direct ground for civil liability on the European level in this credit rating agency regulation. It's Article Thirty Five A. Um, and this is so. This is a, this is a, a provision, uh, an article that parties can invoke before their national courts uh, when they wish to um, to initiate a, um, a, a a a claim for damages against a credit rating agency. Uh, and, and this is a rare, rare example of a, um, a provision of, of private law that has been adopted on the European level, which um, which uh, which allows. Um, parties in in member states to um, to invoke this European provision before the national courts within the context of, of of their own national law. Do you know why that was? Was it because the ratings agencies were so cross border in in character? Um, yeah, that's 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 a very very interesting question. I think maybe the 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 political backgrounds of of the two instruments were a bit. Different, I think, collateral transactions have been considered to be highly important for the functioning of the European markets, and also they play a, a very important role in the monetary policy of uh, European central banks. So, so there was a clear, um, clear reason to to regulate also on, on the European level. This type of of transactions, uh, and on the, which is I think a bit different when you compare it to the um, credit rating agency regulation, which was triggered in part by the global financial crisis. I think where a lot of, well, it has been considered to be the, the crisis is considered to be by many to have been. Um, um, uh, maybe not caused, but 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 indeed um, um, deepened by by credit rating agencies, um, which did not always properly rate uh, certain instruments that that lie at the root of the of, of the crisis. So there was a there was for that reason a um, an incentive to to regulate um, uh, credit rating agencies, and there was also a uh, an idea that it would be good that um, um, that that also European credit rating agencies would enter the market, and for that reason, it was thought a European, a pan-European system of liability would be would be a good idea. 
And so, so I think, yeah, I, I agree with you. We say, well, there is a specific and, and a, um, a deeply felt or, 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 or the, was, it was seen there is a lot of cross-border activity, especially going on in, in, these, in these two areas. But um, also the, the incentives, the policy goals have been a bit different when you, when you look at the two, uh, the two instruments. But, 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 but again, the cross-border activity, the cross-border nature of, um, of, the, um, of, of, the, of the type of activity that's regulated by the two instruments that in, was indeed an important, important factor. Hmm. Well, uh, winding up with, um, with Brexit, uh, you know, the big change since your, since your first edition, um, apart from not wanting to accept free movement, the, the British government rejected continued passporting of financial services because it wanted the freedom to diverge in financial law. I, I've only been able to identify two or three areas where I think realistically uh, the British could or would want to diverge. Do, do you have any ideas where where it would be advantageous for the UK to diverge uh, in financial law? Well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a difficult <laughs> one. Uh, um, you get a consultant's fee probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what, what you can see and what's, what's um, been very much on the mind of the, of the of the European of the, of the, of the European Commission too is that uh, also in, in in negotiations to the very last moment um, from the European side they wish to avoid is the UK having a lighter um, type of regulation um, where it may be um, more advantageous for financial financial firms to to engage in business under. Um, under UK supervision rather than under under EU uh, regulation, so there will be a, a, a from from a competition standpoint a um, uh, an area so close to uh, to the EU where you would have it well um, very attractive for financial firms to um, to do their business without having to comply with these um, all these burdensome rules. That, that have been um, promulgated on the European level, so so that 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 has been 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 been, been a great concern, uh, especially if um, if those 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 firms would then which which then would be under under a lighter regime uh, would be allowed to provide their services on the uh, on the continent, and and that's the also the well what was called the integrity of the of the internal market um, issue. Um, which has been so um, so much uh, so 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 contentious, um, but yeah, to, to come up to answer your question, to to, to think of an area where it would be um, um, where it would be well um, advantageous for the UK to to um, to do things differently. Um, that's 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 a difficult one. Uh, apart from the more general comment I just made. Made um, also be, well considering um, the um, well the um, requirements for accessing the European markets. Um, there is this equivalence mechanism where um, the, the the European Commission grants 
access to the to the to the EU financial markets if the home state um, has an equivalent type of um, regulation supervision. So so that could be also an incentive for the UK to to stay at least uh, similar to the uh, to, to the European rule. So so. Uh, that, that could also be consideration when thinking about where to to diverge from EU existing laws and regulations. Um, ironically, of course, um, the UK has always been very influential in, in shaping the European rules, the EU rules, especially where it regards EU financial law, uh, and, and that influence is now gone. So, um, yeah, where, 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 where does that leave? The UK, I, I, I don't know, um, but um, but 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 I, I do think I do. I, I saw that immediately. I was involved in some um, um, some 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 in a legislative process in Brussels at the time, and it was you know the the change was immediately felt in the dynamics um, in, mm-hmm. in these in, in Brussels um, 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 conference rooms. Yeah, yeah. Um, well. Since this is a uh, books network, I ask every guest to uh, recommend a book at the end of the podcast. Uh, what have you chosen and why? Um, <laughs> this, 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 was, this is a difficult, difficult question. There are so many books I really, well, I really like to read, um, not only financial law books, but certainly also other books. Um, I, I, I thought I'd just go for, for books that I'm I'm. I'm reading at the moment. So, so, so a book that I'm reading at the moment is Stalingrad by Vasily Grossman, mm-hmm. um, and that's 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 one of two books he wrote, Life and Fate. That's that's really a, a very um, uh, well-known book. It, it concerns also the the siege of Stalingrad, and it's it's um, it has been dubbed the well, the modern day uh, war and peace by Tolstoy. So. Um, I, I've I was very much impressed with with life and fate. Um, I, I liked it a lot. I found it really a moving uh, book. It's 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 a huge book, but it's it's, it's fantastic. And 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 that's why I also now um, am reading the um, the book that was intended to uh, to go together. So it's it really uh, um, a two book project has been that. So so now I'm I'm reading Stalingrad and a well, in, you know, the, he he knows how to write a story to to tell a story. Um, it's deeply human. It's moving. Um, all these various characters. I think I think it's it's fantastic. And also, it's interesting because he 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 witnessed everything firsthand. He was um, a doctor, I think, a medic, um, mm-hmm. um, um, traveling with the Red Army at the time. Um, so so, and if you if you allow, allow me, there was also. Another book, um, which yep. which I am now avidly well, maybe not reading. Well, reading is also a good, a good word, but it's maybe using is more apt because it's a cookbook. I like to cook, and 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 this <laughs> has been given much impetus now by the by the pandemic and having to do everything at home. Um, I, I really like Giorgio Locatelli, an Italian chef who has a has a famous restaurant in London, uh, um, and and uh, um, he has he has 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 made this book made at home, um, 
and I think it's it's, it's a fantastic um, uh, book. Um, it's it's the, the subtitle is "The Food I Cook for the People I Love," uh, and and it's and it's great. Um, you have all these well, various um, Italian um, Italian um, uh, recipes. Some sometimes they're they're quite complex, but now you know with 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 being at home. I have finally <laughs> dared to to also take up this uh, this cookbook, so so that's 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 another one. If you allow me to, yeah, no, absolutely. Is 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 that a new book that came out during the lockdown, or is that an older book? It is an somewhat older book. I I, I think it it came out twenty seventeen, um, oh. but I saw it uh, again marketed in the in the, <laughs> yeah. in, in in the bookshops. Yeah, online, of course. Yeah, the lockdown edition. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> okay, well, uh, today I've been talking uh, to Matthias Hantjens about his European Banking and Financial Law, published last year in its second edition. Matthias, thank you again for uh, coming onto the podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Mm-hmm.